Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. The tables turn for ABC's 7.30 journalist, Laura Tingle, as subject rather than interviewer as she analyses the domestic and political world. Combining political insights with personal observations and anecdotes about the players who hold our fate in their hands, rest assured Laura will not let anyone off lightly. Hosted by Anne Summers, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Thank you for that very enthusiastic welcome. Um, and welcome to this um, event, uh, Laura Tingle and uh, me talking. Um, I want to welcome you all here and thank you so much for, for being here this afternoon. I also want to welcome the very, very large uh, audience that we have who are watching this on live streaming. Um, Laura's fans around the country are, of course, legion. And those who couldn't be in Sydney today, have uh, many of whom have chosen to watch it um, online, which is great. So a big shout out to those as well. Um, I'm not going to formally introduce Lauren because, of course, you know who she is. Um, I'm going to do it uh, by way of a few little stories I'll tell before we go into the formal questions. Um, I want to start in 1981, and I want to talk about the cadet, the Canberra Bureau Chief, and the schoolboy. <laughs> the cadet, of course, is Laura. 19-year-old Laura Tingle, who's just been part of the Fairfax intake, and she's been assigned to work on the Australian Financial Review, where I happen to be the political correspondent and Canberra bureau chief. And the schoolboy, 13-year-old Scott John Morrison, <laughs> has just started at Sydney Boys High School. So we fast forward 25 years to 2006, I have ridden off into the sunset doing other things. Uh, the cadet has now taken my old job in the Canberra Press Gallery, um, she, where she has um, also dethroned me from the position I used to hold at the Fin Review, where I was known as the Queen of the Long Sentence. <laughs> And I held the land speed record for some time uh, from awarded by the subs every week for having written the longest first sentence for a Canberra observed column. <laughs> and I think you remember this happening, don't they, you? They do. They used, to, they used to have a book on you, Anne. You know, how long will it be this week? <laughs> and I think, I think the, um, the winning entry was 193 words. Um, this is at a time when the normal first sentence for a, for a, a column should be 30 words. Anyway, Laura took, uh, took over for me in more respects than one because she also likes a long sentence. The schoolboy um, has left school and he has just um, launched an advertising campaign for Australia called Where the Bloody Hell Are You? <laughs> and he's just about to be sacked from his job as General Manager of Tourism Australia. <laughs> We still don't know why. <laughs> a year later, he enters federal politics. 
Fast forward again to 2018, and Laura Tingle is now Chief Political Correspondent for the ABC 730 program, and Scott Morrison is Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, Mr Morrison, the Prime Minister, has a well-known aversion to appearing on Laura's program. He does not like to be interviewed by Laura Tingle, so my first question to you, Laura, is why not? <laughs> what? Why is Scotty so scared of you? <laughs> Look, I think... I, I like to think this is an urban myth, but one I'm cultivating. Um, <laughs> So, in fact, the Prime Minister has not been on 7.30 uh, since, I think, May last year. So I'm not taking it personally. Uh, but there certainly is um, a certain hostility to me, I think, out of the Prime Minister's office. They're entitled to that. Um, but, um, you know, his loss, you know. <laughs> I mean, if you're a politician, you want to speak to somebody. Uh, you're not speaking to me or to Lee Sales. You're speaking to about a million people mm. who watch the program every night. Who vote. Who vote. Mm. Uh, and apparently he doesn't feel he has any, uh, anything to gain from talking to that audience. So he's lost. Well, do you think he's just given up on them? Look, I, I have this theory about not just him, but about uh, about I think certainly the, the case of the government's media strategy, but I think it also applies to some of the state leaders and things as well. It used to be the case that in election campaigns, you'd move to this system, and it's been the case for probably 30 years, where you, there'd be this sort of staged event in the morning. Uh, and they'd do the media, and then they'd disappear for the day. So that, that was a way of controlling what the message was on the day. And if you think about it, I think that's sort of what the government is now doing in general. They go on breakfast television, breakfast radio, whatever, do the, paper, do the drop to the papers, and I don't think that they feel that they need to talk at night. Uh, as much as they would have done a decade ago. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is different. I think the role of the political interview in current affairs is changing. I mean, they're out there everywhere, all day, if they, if they want to be. Um, so by the time it gets to night time and, you know, there's a specific focus on them, um, they sort of don't see that there's as much value. They're more vulnerable. I mean, I think that's really strange because it's a different audience. I mean... I, I don't think, I mean, I think of myself, I don't watch breakfast television, so if, 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 if a politician's on breakfast television, I'm not going to see them. But if they're on 7.30, I'm more likely to see them. So there's whole audiences that they are show, basically showing contempt for. Yeah, absolutely. Complete contempt. Okay. Uh, we're going to shock. <laughs> we're going to... Um, um, spend a fair bit of time today talking about um, issues and subjects and, and what is happening in this country from the political vantage point. But before I do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Laura's making the big move into television in 2018. I mean, it's a really, really big thing to do um, for a number of reasons. I mean, on one hand, reading um, your, your life story, reading some interviews with you, I sort of saw that there was perhaps a certain inevitability about it, given that your parents met in the ABC newsroom many, many decades ago, and your father, John Tingle, in fact, was director of TV news Correct. at the ABC at one point. Correct. So it sort of 
coming home a bit. Hi, so, Dad, by the way, he's watching from Warhope. <laughs> <laughs> and hi, so, Mum. at one level, what took you so long? Yep. On the other hand, um, you know, leaving the very long-term comfort zone of the familiar medium of print, where you basically were without peer uh, in your reporting and commentary, um, in fact, you were very famous for your writing, uh, for your um, complex paragraphs and your long sentences. <laughs> and in fact, I, I don't want to harp on the long sentences, it's not that I'm bitter or anything. <laughs> But Laura did tell me an interesting story the other day that during her long uh, apprenticeship um, and, and, and gaining experience in, in the print medium, she worked for a while at The Australian in the Canberra Press Gallery where her bureau chief was Paul Kelly. And he t you told me that he one day complimented you on one of your sentences in your, the, re the report that you were filing for Sydney. And uh, he told you, however, it could have been improved somewhat. He did. Um, I, they, uh, I moved essentially from the Australian Financial Review to the Australian, and uh, we, we were never, they never gave us much um, discipline on our writing at the Fin. Um, so the Australian had to sort of knock me into shape as to how to write a news story. And so Kelly and Dennis Shanahan had that job, and they'd look at my copy on the type, I think it was still on the typewriter in those days. And Kelly came and leant over my shoulder one day and said, hmm, yes, that's very good. Um, excellent sentence. I think you just need a verb and you'll have nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. <laughs> One of the things about print is it um, doesn't matter what you wear, hmm? doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter how many mistakes you make, you can always <laughs> delete, delete, delete. You're not doing it live. Um, in television, there's nowhere to hide. You know, you not only have to produce a good report, um, you have to look good while you're doing it. If you're a woman, you have to look even better. And, you know, everybody comments on, what's she wearing tonight? Oh, those earrings, mm, you know. It's inevitable, we can't, we can complain about it, but it's inevitable. Um, and it's very, very hard. You know, you've got to learn a whole new language, a whole new range of skills. Um, you did all this after many, many years in print. You did it um, at an age when once it would have been unthinkable for a woman to be breaking into television, even maybe surviving that long in television, uh, which is, I think, incredibly impressive, but it must have been terrifying. Um, look, it, it, it wasn't, um, be, because my view was, well, all I can really do is fuck it up, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I, I felt... The, it's I mean, very public. If you fuck it up on television, it's, you know... Yeah, but, I mean, I, I suppose the ABC, um, you know, everybody loves to be rude about the ABC, but um, I was confident that they would look after me. You know, that they'd teach me um, and they'd give me the resources that I needed to learn. And they, and they have. Um, and I, I did have to learn a different language uh, and a different way of telling stories, which is why I made the jump. Uh, but once I'd learnt that language, um, my boss, Justin Stevens, who's the executive producer at 7.30, he'd, he'd said to me when uh, they hired me, look, we want to do politics differently. It's been fine the way it's been going, but we want to do it differently. But it meant for a couple of years I had to learn the way it was being done and had to learn what, you know, GV and overlay and, you know, upsots and stuff like that meant. I had to learn, like in, in print, you know, after a while, 
if they say you've got 500 words, you know how much you can say in that. In television, if they say you've got five minutes, I've got no idea. You know, it's those things that you've got to learn. And uh, so it took me a couple of years to sort of get on top of that and to stop seeing the whites of the eyes of my bosses. <laughs> oh, God, what's she going to do? Oh. Uh, and then at some point I was able to say to Justin, OK, you asked me when I came, what, what should we do? And I said, this is what we're going to do. And he said, OK, great. And what was that? Well, it was more, um, they're, they're, they're what we call the, the tingle take. Um, it's, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't frame it, but it's, it's, it's actually an idea stolen from Barry Cassidy, if it's if the truth be known. But essentially, and to me, it had the sort of muscle memory of you know what Paul Lynham used to do or Barry Cassidy used to do uh, in in that job, and which was more of an analytical piece, a lot more of Laura talking to camera with grabs of politicians, rather than going out and doing, um, you know, a sort of a, what we call case study journalism, you know, and Summers, you know, of, of Sydney, uh, you know, blah, 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 uh, or that we would go out and just do new interviews looking for new information necessarily. And my view of it was that we are all completely overwhelmed by information at the moment, and none of us have any idea what it means most of the time. And, you know, in the same vein as I think, you know, the pollies are going on breakfast television to try to set the agenda for today, or any day, by 7.30, people are sort of going, oh, I've heard all of this stuff all day, but I might have missed something, or, you know, is basically bringing it together, sort of pre-digesting it and saying, this is the bit that you need to know about what happened and um, doing it, you know, reasonably, assertively sometimes. Um, well, see, I... <laughs> I, of course, have been out of the country for, for quite a few years, only back a few months, and, um, you know, I, was, I, I heard a lot about you and people were telling me how wonderful you were, but I couldn't actually see you because you can't get um, iView in, in New York, unfortunately, uh, not for, the, for news programs. And uh, so I, you know, didn't really know what the fuss was about. So when I came back, I said to people, what, you know, what, what does she do? What is, what, what is it that she does that's so incredible? And what people have said to me is that they come to you not just for information, uh, because that's not the key thing you do, but they come to you for understanding, but also reassurance. They feel that after watching one of your reports, they... They have, a, they have a, not only have a grip on what the, the, the subject is, but you help them know how to feel about it and to think about it. Oh, well, I, th I mean, if I'm reassuring people, that's great. Yeah, good. Um, I mean, I think you are. That's what people have said to me. Well, and since I've been back, and of course now I watch it assiduously, I would uh, agree with that comment. Mm. Um, but I think it's more than that. I mean, you have a way of delivering these stories, which is... Um, attracted a big fan base, and it's partly, um, well, you know, the eyebrows. <laughs> I, the eyebrows thing is, I find, really. <laughs> look, here's a secret: I don't actually have eyebrows normally. I'm rather blonde, <laughs> um, but that's. I mean, it, it came originally from a, th a thing where uh, I just interviewed Josh Frydenberg. 
and it wasn't it wasn't an editorial comment, which apparently it was taken as. But there's this one of the th one of the techniques in television, of course, is you finish one story and then you go to the next one. And of course, there are all these various techniques for you know signalling this. You know, for example, looking down at your notes and then looking up again. And we tried that one, and I no, I wasn't very good at that. Uh, <laughs> it was completely fraudulent. But I sort of I suppose I was trying to find some way of saying, well, you know, and that report brought to you by, you know, if you want more information, is on the website, you know, change of, change of, change of, um, of mood for the next story um, about the, you know, the circus performers or whatever. And um, I was still just experimenting with it, but it's, it's become a bit of a thing. Um, so, I don't know. I had, I was, didn't they have a Twitter account at some point? Uh, a couple of got, people have got uh, Laura Tingle eyebrow Twitter accounts, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd take that as a compliment. I'm t I, look, I'm taking it as a compliment. My eyebrows are taking it as a compliment too. So. <laughs> now, the other thing that really um, surprised me the other, when we were talking the other day is this, that you um, told me, and I didn't realise that reporters or, or commentators, political editors, would choose their, their, own, their own music for their segments. Sometimes. Sometimes. So, yeah. well, on this particular time, I was... Um, you, you did a, a, a quite a long report, I think it was seven minutes, which is quite long in television time, a piece on Christian Porter, and I think the title of the piece was Minister Under a Cloud of Rape Allegations, and if you want to have a look at it on iView, it's on the 2nd of March, 2021, and when you start watching this program, um, the thing that is so striking about it is the music. Yeah. It's the Mozart Requiem. Mm. Yeah. And not only that, it's the way in which the music is synced. Yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty pleased with that, I've got to say. Unfortunately, um, we should have actually arranged to have a clip of it here, it would have been good to show it, but could you just, just tell us how you managed to sync various movements with various... Yeah, so, so uh, the Christian Porter story ran over about four days, and normally the music is chosen by um, the, the very clever editors who uh, edit uh, our pieces, but on this day I said... Uh, as I sometimes do, I say, okay, this is the music we're going to run, and they're always a bit shocked, <laughs> and they've got a bit more used to it now. Um, but I said, we're going to, this story's going to run for a few days, and we're going to run the various movements of the Mozart Requiem, um, and um, which seemed appropriate because, of course, at the centre of the Christian Porter story was a terrible story about a woman who'd killed herself. Uh, and, you know, an incredibly traumatic story. So I thought the Requiem was appropriate. And um, uh, I, I became a singer in a choir about uh, 15 years ago. Uh, and the first thing that I sang, which was here at the Opera House, was Mozart Requiem. So I'm particularly fond of it and familiar with it. But halfway, I think, through the piece, we sort of set out a lot of the story, but we were interviewing Joe Dyer, who is the um, director of the Adelaide Writers' Festival, um, sorry, Adelaide Writers' Week, and of course is now standing for Parliament, and who was a friend of uh, this woman who had, uh, had died. And there's this moment in the first movement of the Requiem where this, you know, this is incredibly, you know, sort of solemn music, a lot of bassoons, my favourite, um, and the choir sings, and then over the top of it, this absolutely sublime, 
soprano comes in. So I said to the editor, now when we get to the bit where we've got um, Jo speaking for her friend, I want to have this, you know, profoundly gorgeous note come in. And, you know, the editor, who didn't know the music at all, just came and said, mate, mate, it's just, mate, mate, mate. mate. <laughs> and, I mean, I think it, I mean, it's sort of interesting. I mean, this is me learning about television, but I think... It would have worked. It, well, it just really made the piece so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's worth watching. It's really worth watching. The attention to detail is something that's very telling. Yeah, I mean, we, it's not... It's not quite that good all the time and the, of course there was the, uh, the occasion when um, we chose the Cornish sea shanty to go with the story about the G8 meeting in Cornwall <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that rather triggered one of our supervising producers <laughs> um, so they've become a bit wary about my musical choices. <laughs> You say that um, you know, what you're most proud of doing um, with your television commentaries is, is helping, uh, I've, got, I've written down readers, sorry, I, I meant viewers, um, understand complex issues, and it's a very difficult thing to do on television. That's one of the reasons I think when print journos used to look down on television. You know, I remember once, years and years ago, George Negus approached me and said, asked me if I'd like to try out for 60 Minutes, and I'd never been more insulted in my life. <laughs> He, of course, was incredibly insulted that you were I, insulted. I took that view. But, I mean, you know, the print journals back then really did think that, you know, they were superior because they were able to tell a complex story. Now, that, that has changed, and, and you're a, an example of that. Um, but, but how do you do it? How do you tell a complex story on television? Um, I mean, you also still write a column yeah. once a week at the Fin Review and sometimes also ABC Online, so yeah. you do both. I mean, is it sort of yeah. hard to toggle between the two? Uh, well, no, because I've been columnising for so long that that's sort of, that sort of you know, reasonably straightforward. Um, I don't know how I... I suppose all, all, you only ever need one idea, really. If you can reduce something to one idea about what's going on, um, all of the rest of it, you know, falls into place. So you've just got to sort of have an organising principle, I think. And you don't, and you don't actually have to go into all that much detail. You just need to sort of. I, I just think there's a, a real lack these days of sort of spelling out the architecture of something. I'll give you an example. Um, aged care. Uh, okay, we all know it's a disgrace and it's a nightmare and all those sorts of things. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a couple of ways of telling that story on television. One of them is that you go out and talk to people in the field and tell their terrible experiences. Or the thing that, you know, is much more my natural milieu, which is to sort of say, well, what's the biggest problem in aged care? The workforce, which has to massively be expanded but is actually contracting. So let... What's the, what's, what did the Royal Commission say you had to do about the workforce? Well, the first thing is you've got to pay them more bloody money so that people actually want to work in, in aged care. Yeah. So um, we've prepared, but I've, I've just had a week um, away from work, um, but we've, we've prepared a piece which will hopefully run this week about this wage case, and which sort of sounds pretty straightforward, but just actually explains 
how significant this is. It's not just about giving people a 25% wage rise. There's a lot more to it. And, um, and we've got lots of voices telling that story. Um, but it's, it's just really keeping it, you know, actually not letting yourself get over, you know, not, not being, letting the sort of the details get um, too overwhelming. Well, let's move on now and, and talk about some of the sort of important political issues uh, of our time. And you, a few years ago, wrote a quarterly essay called Political Amnesia, um, in which you, you talked about and lamented the decline of institutional memory in Canberra. Can you just, like, tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and what you think the consequences of it are? Um, so, um, it's largely uh, an, an essay about the public service and its demise, um, and, but, but it's more than that. It's about uh, things like contracting out and privatisation, uh, and it's about the fact that the institutional memory that used to be there in politics and in the public service has been lost because so much is contracted out, people come and go, there's no reservoir of information available to people about how some issue was addressed the last time around. Now, possibly as a uh, result of my longevity, I do actually remember a lot of stuff just because, you know, I've been there too long. But it's, um, but, you know, people, and it's increasingly the case that policy is actually set by ministers' offices. Ministers' offices, uh, as everybody knows, or I think knows, um, are now basically full of political appointments, often who've got no expertise in the policy area at all. But, uh, the, but the public service is essentially the same. You know, it, 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 the public service has become a place which manages contracts for advice. It doesn't... Not the advice itself. Not the advice itself. It's increasingly become the case. Mm. And uh, so it's about that loss of memory and its implications for for bad policy making. Well, it does... I mean, as somebody who's worked in, in the bureaucracy as well as in journalism and who has a long-standing interest in policy, in particular particularly areas around women's um, uh, issues and domestic violence and um, social policy generally, I mean, it is quite appalling uh, these days to go and look at policy. I mean, the, the, an example would be the national draft national plan against... Um, to stop violence against women, 10-year plan, a draft of which was released by the government recently, and it is just, it is content-free. I mean, it's got all these lovely sentiments about let's end violence. Yeah, yeah, rah, rah, okay. How? They haven't got a clue. Mm. Absolutely haven't got a clue. Uh, and there's nobody in the department who can discuss policy because they don't do policy anymore, as you say. And I mean, the, the implications or the ramifications of that for how we govern are, are shocking. And I remember... Also, a related point, um, you, know, you recently hosted uh, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame at the National Press Club, which is a fantastic event. And one of the things that struck me in Brittany Higgins' speech, which is a, a very, very sophisticated speech, she talked about, you know, one of the colleagues in the Defence Minister's office who was, I think, under 30 years of age, who was in charge of the F-35 fighter program. It, 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 and two years earlier, he'd been answering the phones in the electorate office, I think was the story, yeah. So, you know, he had minimal training for this job, shall we put it? Um, shall we express it? Um, 
it's actually terrifying when you think that, you know, a multi-billion dollar defense contract um, is being, being managed by a young person who knows nothing and there's nobody to supervise him, and he will be telling the Defence Department what to do. Well, you know, clearly there's a lot of people in Defence who'd be keeping an eye on it, but they are sort of essentially having to deal with him as yeah. the conduit to the minister, and uh, it is terrifying. Yeah. Um, and it's really pervasive. I mean, you also tell me a story about a, a minister who, um, back in, in government after some time, mm. asked, can you tell that story about asking for options? Uh, yeah, so, you know, this, this isn't just a, a function of the last few years. This, this has basically been going on, well, it really started, um, you know, with the, with the deregulation of the economy um, under Hawke and Keating, um, but escalated hugely under John Howard, hugely, uh, because he really did have a full frontal assault on the public service. And um, somebody who had been a minister in the Hawke and Keating governments um, came back into power with Kevin Rudd in uh, 2008, and... Um, 2007, and... Uh, um, he was shocked when he had a meeting with his senior bureaucrats at the time and he, and he said, well, they were briefing him on some particular issue and he said, um, so, you know, what would your advice be about what we should do on this? And they said, well, Minister, what would you like our advice to be? And... Um, that's not, not funny. That's... Not no, funny. it's really... No, it's really disconcerting. Yeah. Um, so, just look at, let's look at that, um, that, that point from another perspective. I mean, you have now, in the course of your political, your journalistic career, have observed nine prime ministers. Hopefully, there'll soon be a tenth. Um, <laughs> and Laura, being an objective ABC person, cannot say that, but I can. It appears that there might be some people in the crowd who agree. <laughs> anyway, Laura has observed nine prime ministers, starting with Malcolm Fraser, um, who was in office from 1975 to 1983. Um, and since then, there's altogether been eight men, one woman. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could give us some observations about um, any you might care to nominate. I mean, who was the smartest? Who's the most interesting? Who's the best for the country? Who was the one you most respected? I mean, can you name any that would oh, warrant yeah. these sorts of descriptions? Yeah, um, look, well, to do that, you've got to define what makes people, you know, what, what, what I think makes people good at their jobs. Yeah. Um, so, and, th and there's a whole range of skills that are involved in being Prime Minister. Um, whatever their views are, um, I want them to be able to tell me why they're doing something and that there's actually some sort of sign of, um, you know, intellectual life, you know, <laughs> behind it. People used to say that the press gallery was enamoured of Paul Keating as treasurer, and they'd say, why, why is that? 
And I said, well, I don't know that they're enamoured of him, but the point about uh, Keating as treasurer was that uh, he'd have these monthly press conferences, sometimes more, but for the balance of payments. And he'd go in there, and it's a bit, uh, the only thing that, for those who didn't see it, uh, that I can compare it to would be uh, Daniel Andrews or Gladys Berejiklian's press conferences during COVID, uh, where they'd just stay there till people had run out of questions. And, and that was the thing with Keating. He would stand there and take questions until you'd run out. So you'd, you'd, go, you'd, you'd leave going, well, he seems to have thought about it, you know. Uh, he might not be right, but he's thought about it. So that, to me, is sort of a really important thing. So without a doubt, the two standouts in terms of people who've just had that extraordinary capacity to think outside the square, reimagine policy, reimagine the the tools they had uh, to change things or not change things, as the case may be, were Hawke and Keating. Now, um, John Howard, uh, I sort of sometimes joke, was the beginning of you know all our problems, but um, but he he was without a doubt. I think doubt. that's just an objective assessment. No, <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I think the point about it was, I think, uh, but my problem with John Howard was, particularly since he was a conservative, that he destroyed. Or you know, de, you know, uh, devalued so many of our institutions, like the public service. I, that's a bit I can't get about John Howard. It, you know, whatever whatever else he was actually doing, that's the bit that I don't understand. Um, well, I sort of do understand it, but uh, that I sort of find really hard to um, to to deal with. But. Uh, he was nonetheless, the thing that I always credit uh, Howard with is that he did have that capacity to stand back sometimes and just go, wait a minute, you know, jump outside the bubble. Uh, what's happening here? Am I making the right moves? And, and to say, actually, no, I'm not. I've got to do something different. And to be quite open about that. Mm. Uh, now, I mean, and I'm not thinking about things like the GST here, but like there'd be points where he'd just sort of go, wait a minute, we've, this has all just got completely out of control, we're going to reset. And that's quite a dangerous and brave thing to do if you're a politician. So well, he was actually interested in governing. I'll give him that. Yeah, he, he understood was... governing. He, he wanted to govern, and he and he knew what governing was. Yeah, he did. And that is something that we appear to be lacking yeah. these and, days. And and this is this is not um, this is not you know I mean if you criticise the government today, everybody immediately goes you know you lefty you know ideological, uh, <laughs> but. I bumped into a Howard government minister on Friday in Parliament House, and his observation was, we used to actually do stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, like, he was shaking his head like a lot of other people. What do these guys actually do? I mean, what do they do for a living? You know, we're paying them. Well, I mean, that's another thing. We just talked about um, the current Prime Minister for a minute. Um, I mean, I'm just com completely um, baffled, almost, by, by, by watching him. I mean, I just can't believe 
the lies. I mean, the bald-faced lies. I mean, who says black is white? And yesterday, he's on, on cameras having said white was black. So, I mean, it's not like a, a matter of interpretation. I mean, he just, he just says things like that, which is extraordinary. Um, this idea of governing by announcement, so you make announcements, but you don't, don't actually ever do them. You don't implement anything. Mm. All this sort of daggy, performative stuff. I mean... Can you imagine Paul Keating going to a hairdresser's and washing a woman's? Or mopping a basketball court, um, sort of. Um, but, but yeah, the hairdresser one was. Yeah. Well, that was like that was creepy. I thought that was creepy. Well, apart from apart from creepy, you know, didn't somebody say to him, PM, you do realise that means you'll be holding a hose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Does know how to hold. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that. There's his, his absolute. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of male politicians, a lot of men, you know, are, are not comfortable talking about women's issues. But you know, if you're the prime minister, you've got to make an effort to sort of understand things and policies. But his his inability to discuss anything to do with women, his uncomfortableness with it, with discomfort, I should say. His, you know, his saying in Parliament on the, after the Women's March last year that, you know, we were lucky not to have been shot. I mean, it's just like, it's baffling. Look, it, it, I mean, th there's, there's sort of two sides of uh, Prime Ministers. One, there's the policy side, and two, there's the political salesmanship. And people are always saying, oh, you know, he's such a... Because, yeah, you know, when, when you win an election, you suddenly develop genius status. Um, and all these people say, oh, you know, he's a genius, and, you know, he, oh, he's so clever and everything. But he does just talk to blokes. That, that observation's been made by a few people. And... You know, I don't know why he can't speak to women, but what I don't understand is that at no point does he seem to have s said, I think I need some help here. Somebody somebody needs to come in and tell me what I'm doing wrong and, you know, how do, how do I think about this and, and how do I reset it? And every time instead that he's tried to reset it, it's just made it worse. Mm -hmm. Just And uh, so if... if if you are just a, you know, say you're a very shallow person and all you're interested in is making announcements about stuff um, but you, and, and, and winning an election and running the country, you'd sort of think that you'd want to make sure that you were doing it to achieve those ends instead of the exact opposite. And that's, that's what I don't quite... I'm as well, baffled the, as you are. The, the other thing is, I think, you know, if you were the Prime Minister of a country um, and, you know, the country was on flames, the place was burning, you know, people were in extraordinary distress, you know, taking to the beaches to, to, to save their lives, incredible floods, you know, as we've seen in, in Lismore and northern New South Wales. And the, the, the sheer um, lack of interest in the suffering of, your, of the people that you are supposedly governing. I just, I mean, I just don't get that. Yeah. Even if you were faking it, you, you'd, yeah. you'd pretend to be interested. You'd, yeah. you'd go through the motions, surely. Yeah, well, you know, if you, if you are good at making announcements about stuff, I mean, Kate, the PM's been in isolation and COVID for the last little while, but he, was, he did a video about Warney. 
Um, and and he also did a quad meeting. He did a quad meeting. I mean, so you know, there, there are these things you can talk to people from, yeah. you know, I mean, the room without even, leaving. Even if all you were doing was having photos of yourself, you know, on the phone to, you know, the bat cave or whatever. I mean, you, you, yeah. you'd do it, wouldn't you? Yeah, well... I, and I, I, so I, I don't know what has happened. Um, they've, they've, they seem to have become paralysed or something. But once again, this guy, the former federal minister, was um, saying, you know... We, and it's obvious that we need some sort of federal agency that's got the capacity to have these shipping containers, like state emergency services, or whatever, you know, full of dinghies or you know, tinnies or whatever, and, and that they can move at a moment's notice. I mean, the only functional part, I would argue, of the federal government infrastructure is the defence forces. Now, of course, while most of the public sector has been sort of sold off, privatised, whatever. The Defence Forces, partly because of 9-11, have had this massive boost in, um, in uh, resources over the last 20 years. Uh, but it's also an institution into itself which politicians are terrified of trying to interfere with uh, because nobody wants to be responsible for you know, things going bad in the military. So when, when you think about it, that's their go-to option all the time when these things go wrong. And now, it's right, I think, that it takes a while to get these things underway. You know, if you move hundreds of troops into a, an area, you've got to also make sure that, you know, they're fed and have got somewhere to stay, you know? I mean, just basic things like that. And you've got to move them from somewhere and all those things. And, you know, we have to be fair about that. But once again, it's sort of the atmospherics and the, the look of these things. Why, you know, why not say after the bushfires, you know, we do need a national structure? I mean, the Royal Commission had a lot of recommendations which haven't been acted on. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I just think to me, it's absolute dereliction of duty. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Okay, we're not going to solve it, but you know we should maybe be aware of it. Um, it's just um, just talking about leadership. You also wrote in your quarterly essay, another quarterly essay you did on leadership um, a few years ago, and you wrote, you wrote in that uh, you said that we judge political leaders by their popularity rather than by their ideas. Um, and the implication is that, that they no longer need to have ideas; they just have to be popular. Yeah. Um. I'm just trying to think while I sit here, have I changed my thought on that since then? Um, I think not. Um, I think, I don't know whether we, I mean, I, I don't know if that was a, a, an observation about the media or not, but I mean, I think it's true that, um, as I said, you know, if you win an election, suddenly everybody thinks you're a genius. Mm. Uh, if you're popular, they think you're a genius. Um, if you're, if you try to push a, a hard idea through, you know, you're brave in that yes minister sense. Um, and I think we, we, we have seen, come to see politics as a horse race, uh, which I think both led to and was, um, and escalated as a result of all of those leadership changes, you know, that, that, we, that the parties consuming themselves about being popular meant that it didn't matter whether you had an idea. You know, it mattered whether you thought you'd get over the line um, at, the, at the election. But, I mean, at the moment, we've got no popularity and no ideas. You could say that, yes. Um, so, are we in trouble? Um, I think...
think we are in a bit of trouble, uh, but I, I, I remain, you know, despite everything, a, a great optimist. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, tell us, Laura, why? <laughs> well, well, because things do change. Like, for example, um, the rise of independence. Um, I think, you know, there, there is no God-given rule that says there's a two-party system. You know, I think that a lot of people are shocked to find, find that out, you know. P Parliament wasn't originally designed, or it wasn't really designed at all, really, but, um, but I mean, it was not, it was never certain that there would be just two parties. And, of course, in the early years of Federation, we, we certainly didn't have those. So you, you see influences like that coming up. Um, and I think you, you do see things changing with generations. I, I tend to think these things swing uh, on a bit of a pendulum, so my optimism is that it will swing back. The thing that's been sort of surprising to me is that, you know, increasingly there's been this glaringly obvious need. You know, I mean, I came into journalism you know, writers Thatcher and Reagan were at their power and everything was about the markets and getting rid of restrictions and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's fine, but at some point you've got to stop and say, well, actually, that bit hasn't worked or that bit hasn't worked, and we've got to fix it. Now, what we, I think, have been lacking is at that really big picture idea, anybody being brave enough to actually say that, because that's basically regarded as a size of government issue, which has been regarded as a debt and deficit issue. Well, we're sort of freed of debt and deficits now um, because, you know, it's just we we've got anymore. so much of it. Uh, and, and that changes the underlying nature of the debate. And in another quarterly essay I wrote, which is about Australia and New Zealand, you, you, I mean, New Zealand's sort of interesting. You, you, you go there and... Uh, they they went radically more free market than we did and mm -hmm. made some monstrous, monstrous, very damaging errors. But they've actually done things like they've bought back um, the railway and 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 the and the government bank and things. Now I'm not saying that we have to do that, but it's one of those things where they've just said, "Well, we stuff that up, so we're going to change it." So. I mean, one of the things that's um, interesting here, and I think finger a little bit you know, dispiriting, is you know it's so hard to get a proper policy discussion going on things. Um, for example, on climate change, um, there are so many urgent issues facing this country. Um, we've got a government that's unwilling or incapable of dealing with these huge issues, uh, as we said, even delivering um, disaster relief. Um, so, do you think we are going to see? Um, it will be interesting to see what happens with the independents. I mean, if you get enough of them elected that they have that hold the balance of power, how that will affect the, the way in which government happens. Um, that's going to be very interesting. But the other interesting uh, phenomenon in Australia at the moment is the um, other players coming in. You know, Mike Cannonbrook's wanting to buy AGL, you know, that, you know, has seems to have stalled, but I don't think it's over. Um, what Twiggy Forest is doing, you know, they're, they're turbocharging decarbonisation in a way that governments just aren't, aren't able to do or aren't willing to do. And the implications of that, uh, if they succeed, for other areas of government and other areas of the economy, I think are really, really fascinating. So can you see that sort of thing developing more? Well, I suppose I see them as an extension of something that's been going on for sort of 10 years, which is that while the government's been saying no price on carbon, banks 
companies have been putting a price on carbon in their balance sheets. Yeah, yeah. They just had yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, central banks have had to start pricing in climate risk into the way they make monetary policy, led by the Bank of England, but um, Guy Bell, who's just about to leave, has been a big yeah. advocate of it here. So in some ways, it's the ultimate form of the market fixing something that the government should have fixed. We've just suffering a much bigger cost because it was a, an area where a government intervention would have eased that process and made it work much better just because it would have created a lot more certainty for people uh, about investments. I know, I mean, I remember having discussions uh, with the head of the Business Council 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when they'd done the first round of negotiations and they'd agreed on a carbon price, and I think this was um, before, just, just as Kevin Rudd was coming in, it was that long ago, and, uh, you know, the negotiations had been extraordinarily hard and bitter, and, the, and business had given a lot of ground, and they were at the table, and they were willing to do it, and then suddenly, I think Rudd just ripped it all up and um, back to the drawing board. Mm. And I mean, I don't think, and, I mean, business sort of lost trust with government at that point. Yeah, I, th I think, um, well, I suppose there are, there are a few other bits of it there, but um, but business also, business is also a very d divided group, of course, now in Australia. And you could sort of see that, you know, in, in a real world sense, in the way the business council became, you know, bitterly divided uh, over, and the minerals council even became bitterly divided over climate policy. Um, because, you know, the, there were all these people who, you know, whose vested interests were in sort of maintaining the status quo. Um, but they've gradually, you know, fallen by the wayside um, and uh, so, so and even just the idea of business being an amorphous mass of course was only ever really something that came up at the time of um, the summits in the hawk years but uh, yeah, so I mean all of those that's why I suppose I'm an optimist that all of those it's not just politicians who play in the political game it's all of these other interest groups um, uh, advocacy groups they've all got an interest they've all got a voice and and the dynamics between them change so much but the government still controls the Treasury. Yeah, that's true. And they make the laws. They do. And while that's the case, um, yeah. Um, well, we, we've only got about nine minutes left, and uh, there's still a couple of subjects that we have to touch on. Um, and I, I think um, I'd be derelict if I didn't ask you, Laura, about the the role of women in the Canberra Press Gallery and the way in which that's... Um, appears to have changed quite significantly, particularly in the past year, where women uh, journalists have taken the running in some of these big stories, you know, the, the, the Brittany Higgins story, um, the, the, the Kate story, um, the other associated sexual misconduct stories that have occurred within Parliament House. I mean, these are stories that once probably wouldn't have been reported. Uh, at all, or if they had been, they would be—they wouldn't be big front-page stories that, that, you know, that took off and got legs and became, you know, political issues and parliamentary debatable things and, and, and getting the, uh, the the getting people really riled up about them. And I'm just wondering, as somebody, you know, you've been in the gallery a long time, you've, you've observed these changes. What what happened? Why 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 has this change happened? Particularly about the last 12 months. Yes. Um, look, I think it was a, a bit of a happenstance, um, if, if I'm honest about it. Um, 
we talked a bit about, um, we, we haven't talked about, you know, Julie Gillard and, uh, and that whole period, but I might sort of preface it by talking about that. Um, I think it was in Annabelle Crabbe's misrepresented thing, and I think it was Penny Wong, but she was saying how none of the women at the time of that, including Julia, wanted to make a special case for her as Prime Minister because she was a woman. And that was certainly the view that I took of her, uh, you know, that I would judge her as a Prime Minister. I didn't care whether she was male, female, whatever. Uh, and that, unfortunately, I think, led to um, when we saw all that absolutely horrendous treatment of her, uh, you know, all the Ditch the Witch stuff and Alan Jones and everything, I don't think anybody quite knew what to do about that. I think everybody just thought if you ignored it, it would go away. Or, you know, these people were just appalling and you just had to, you know, just not give them any oxygen. And I think that probably um, influenced the way uh, people thought about those stories last year. And they were... And you know what really made it so important was that the reaction to it from the government was so incomprehensibly bad that it basically was a story that told itself. You know, it was it was just... I mean, I, it's sort of interesting. When, when the Brittany Higgins story first came out, I remember thinking, oh, well, they'll, they'll kill this off in a day. And they didn't. I, I, my, you know, you could, can, I mean, do you think they could have? I, well, yeah, it's not beyond the capacity of, of a government to kill off a story, um, you know, via all sorts of mechanisms. Uh, and so I sort of thought, well, this is really horrendous, but, um, you know, it'll, they'll, they'll shut it down somehow. And it turned out that they, every time they sort of did anything, they just made it worse, you know? I've been speaking to Jen, um, uh, which is a question asked by Tegan George, another female journo in, in the gallery. Um, so I, I think it, it was probably incredulity at how bad, badly handled it was, and just the true horror of the story as it unfolded that Meant but, that but, you just but, had to hold but the on women to it. journalists were running the stories, not the male journalists. Yeah. Look, I think also that went back to the inside the Canberra bubble story, mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, it's just to remind people what what, the, what what that was. This is Louise Milligan's story, which um, was criticised a lot at the time. It basically did a very long Four piece, Corners program, Four Corners right? program, which basically did a very long history of Christian Porter and his bad behaviour at university, uh, and then had the story of Rochelle Miller and the fact she'd had an affair with her boss, Alan Tudge. Um, now, it was obviously, as we now know, heavily compromised by the fact that she couldn't run the central allegation, which was the one about Christian Porter. Um, you know, alleged to have raped this um, girl when they were both very young. So, but the hostility of the male journos to that story, I've got to say, was quite shocking. In what way? They just said, what's, what's the point of this, you know? Um, we, we all knew what the allegation was. So they said, well, she couldn't land it, so they shouldn't have run it. And on Rochelle Miller, they said, so she had an affair and it went bad, so whatever. You know, um, and to, whereas to me, um, you know, I sort of thought, right, well, 
first crack, first crack of the rock. Um, you know, this is this is going to break out, and it's going to run. And I didn't see the Rochelle Miller story like that. Um, I saw it as um, a, a case of a very uneven power relationship. Uh, which had, you know, caused terrible damage to this young woman's career and basically ended it uh, with no ramifications for, for the bloke involved, which was something that a lot of women would completely recognise. Mm. Um, and so when the Brittany Higgins story took off, you know, I was sort of ready for the next instalment, whereas I think the male journos had always just sort of, sort of said, oh, you know... It's what happens. It was what happens. Yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, you know, I mean, all of us who've been in, in worked in Parliament House know that it's a, often a very predatory um, environment, and that journalists, female journalists in particular, are as, as susceptible or as vulnerable as female staffers. And you yourself have a story of having dinner with a, I don't know if he's a minister, he was a politician who said he lunged at you after. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was. It was a. Uh, he wasn't a minister. He was a, a senator, and uh, I'd been. I was a new political correspondent. And I thought, oh, I think political correspondents have to go out to dinner with politicians. So um, I went out to dinner with this guy, and um, I said, and, and uh, I said, oh, I can drop you off at home if you like. And he said, sure. And I pulled up outside his house with a motor running, and he lunged across to try to kiss me. And I, <laughs> um, and, um, I sort of realised that I'd sort of basically been toughened up a bit, you know, since I'd arrived in Canberra, because instead of going, oh, you creep, I thought, well, you've got no political judgement, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Having a go at the political correspondent of the Australian, not a really good idea. No. No. It was also incredibly unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, do you think that, um, you know, maybe there was the, the bonking ban and there's been, you know, all sorts of um, the Kate Jenkins reports, of course. You know, there are various efforts being made to try and change the behaviour. I mean, do you, how, how successful do you think these are likely to be? Um, I think... I think they will hopefully be successful. Um, you know, they've put some infrastructure in place um, to help change the culture, but um, it's, it's not certain to me. Uh, it's sort of interesting, if you look at what they've done in New Zealand, the, the, the big focus is on alcohol. Um, they actually have these rules now where, you know, somebody, uh, say, the, say the minister, if the minister is having a function, he has to sign a, like a personal responsibility thing that he will make sure that everybody safely leaves that place where they've been drinking. Um, we, we haven't got that. Uh, it's, you know, but, but alcohol is often heavily involved in um, people making some really stupid mistakes about their life. Um, and uh, I think you know, the, the structure that Kate Jenkins has recommended, if it's put in place, I think will hopefully help change the culture. And it, it, who, who's, is, is it the parliament that does that rather than the government? Yeah. So yeah. The, the, the presiding officers would bring in new regulations or does it have to be... It's actually like a, you know, there, there are going to be two bodies that sort of basically, you know, give you a, um, a, somewhere to go to for advice and, um, and, and, uh, and also support uh, for women or anybody else who's being harassed or bullied. And any kind of punitive response? Uh, I'm having a senior moment and I'm not remembering. Um, 
I can't remember answering. Yeah, okay. It does seem though that there needs to be sanctions of some kind. Yeah. Uh, because this kind of stuff's been tolerated for so long. It is part of the yeah. makeup of the place. Yeah, there certainly and won't be public sanctions, I remember. No, no, but, but yeah, it would be very interesting to see if that happens. Yeah. I'm, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put any money on it. No, okay. Okay. Reasonable. Um, well, I'm, I'm, there's so many other questions I didn't get to. Uh, there's so many more things we could have talked about, but I hope uh, that you found this uh, hour of discussions with Laura um, interesting, fruitful. I want to thank Laura for being so uh, frank and so um, honest with her answers and sharing with us how she does what she does. And uh, we're very grateful to her, and I would ask you to thank her very much. and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.